All right, everybody, what's going on? Another edition of Dual Threat from the Ringer Podcast Network. We have, do we get Pearl Jam cleared for this one too yet or no? Uh, I'll get back to you on that. Okay, let us know. We have a big one for you. I love CBA talk, not the basketball league, but whenever it's the NFL stuff, NBA, hell, I even like a good hockey CBA discussion. <laughs> I'm serious. I used to be really into it, 03, 04. But as of now, the NFL seasons are safe, at least for 19 and 20. The CBA expires after the 2020 season. So we have really special guests lined up for you today. Demora Smith, who is the executive director of the NFLPA, and he has been in that role since 2009. And Eric Winston, who is the president of the NFLPA executive committee. And he's a guy that first was drafted back in 2006. So we're going to have both guys joining us from their offices and we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming issues, whether it is just about a money split, which some people have suggested that's all it is, but not these guys. We'll talk about younger players and access to coaches, the rookie scale contract stuff, weed. Weed is on the agenda. Uh, all sorts of stuff. So I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun because I always find this interesting. And I think if you're a fan, you can educate yourself on it and it'll make you understand transactions better. It'll make you understand all sorts of, you'll just for the NBA, if you're an NBA fan, I can't imagine not understanding the contract stuff because basically more, I would say half the NBA decisions, if not, I don't even know what the percentage is on it. You just go, all right, I wonder what that means. Like, let me understand the CBA a little bit more. So I'm excited to talk with these guys and we'll see if we can challenge them a little bit on that. Before we do that, raise your game with MSX by Michael Strahan Athletic-inspired functional pieces designed for guys who are always on the go, available exclusively at JCPenney. From working out, playing golf, or just relaxing, MSX by Michael Strahan has you covered. MSX includes MSX basics, pants, shorts, shirts, sweatshirts, and outerwear. Big and tall, and boy sizes, too, if your kid's a giant. MSX by Michael Strahan is available exclusively at JCPenney. Visit a store near you or go to jcp.com. Let's welcome in now Demora Smith and Eric Winston. Demora, we'll start with you. You know, as we look at the CBA expiring after the 2020 season, and I'll keep reading stuff where it's like, man, this is way less contentious than back in 2011. And then I'll read, hey, everybody relax here. There's still a deal that needs to be done. It needs to be a new deal. So it's kind of funny from the outside to read one thing saying everything's great. Let's just start here. How different is the feeling right now, still a year and a half away from any kind of deadline, in comparison to a work stoppage in 2011, leading up to that moment? Well, in, in 2009, um, you know, the owners had already come out and said that they were going to lock us out. So there was a uh, certainty of a work stoppage, <clears throat> even if um, other people in, uh, in the media or, or even some of our players didn't think that it was going to happen. Um, I believed it was going to happen. The, the, the core leadership believed it was going to happen in, in 2009. So there was a certain certainty of a work stoppage. Um, the only thing I can do is compare uh, the opportunity to try to get something done now um, against a certainty of a work stoppage back in, in 2011. And I don't know if there's as much of a difference in feeling as it is a difference in, in knowing what's going to happen. And Eric, I had saw, you know, when you would tweet it out, basically like, quote, any conversation with the NFL owners would be a renegotiation for a new deal, not an extension. So 
that leads me to think that there are still things like both sides in any kind of agreement that maybe still bother you from the 2011 agreement as the players. It's not necessarily bother you, but you're you're dealing with a, a totally new body of players that are looking at things in different ways. We're 10 years or close to, you know, coming up on 10 years down the road from that. And the world's changed. And so there's just different things I think that these guys are looking for that they hold important than maybe the guys in, in 11. And, and so I just look at it as a thing where we're not going to rubber stamp anything. There might be items that are very similar. And if you, you know, you look at one, whatever work rules, you know, just say that, you know, you could look and say, oh man, that looks exactly the same or that looks very similar. And then you could go to the next article and it could be something totally different. So while, you know, we're going to, I guess my point there more than anything was the guys are into it. The guys are serious about it and they want to look at everything through fresh eyes. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Okay, DeMorris, what's the number one issue? What's the number one thing that you guys have to do on this new CBA for the players? I, I know that everybody likes to boil it down to the number one issue. Um, but, you know, look at our, look at our business. Um, there are changing landscapes on um, gambling. Um, we have always cared about the health and safety of our um, players. Um, we look at stadium construction. We look at off-season. Um, we always look at um, ways to make sure that uh, more cash is, is going into the pockets of our players. So I don't think that it's um, I don't live in a world, Eric doesn't live in a world where we have the luxury of saying there's a number one issue. Um, I will say that when it comes to the discussions we've had with our leadership, um, one issue that has emerged is how do we take care of core players better? And that's, you know, whether it's a core player who plays the average of three years or a person who makes minimum salary um, or a player who's not um, a superstar. Um, we have spent a lot of time looking at the, the issues that affect the, let's just call it the average player. And, and we certainly want to focus on um, making sure that that player's life is better under uh, this CBA than it was under the previous CBA. And that's no different uh, than, than the way that our union has looked at issues over decades. Eric, anything to follow up on that? No, I mean, I think that's right. Our guys don't live in this siloed world where there's a ranking system, right? I'm sure there's a handful of things, but we constantly message the wages, hours, working conditions, and health and safety. And, and, and guys and different guys will tell you different things that they care about the most, just like anybody, right? I mean, everybody has um, things that they're a little bit more passionate about than the other, but I don't think we necessarily, the leadership has that luxury, right? We, we've got to look out for everybody. And so... We look at it through a, a big macro lens and, and not trying to boil things down. I think when you do that, then you, you really leave some issues on the table that deserve uh, a ton of attention and they become secondary or tertiary issues. Okay, so you just, there's a bunch of things that I want to hit on here. And, you know, as we all know, no matter where you work, what your working conditions are, we can find things that we wish were better. And, I can understand the players years ago when we were starting to be more aware of just the safety of this game and saying we just can't be hitting as much. We need less pad time and some of the changes. And now coaches are freaking out about this, going, we need more time. We especially need more time with younger players. DeMorris, you or, or Eric, is there any part of you that's sympathetic towards, say, the coaches' complaints about feeling they, they don't have enough time and they need to find a way to get more hours with younger players, guys that were just drafted? 
No. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was only being half joking there when I just said one word. No. I'm not sure. I mean, even yeah. I mean, here, here. I mean, here's the thing: is you know, listen. The the owner, the coaches work for the owners. If they think it's such an imperative to save the game, to do these things, then don't message that to the owners. And and those will those will come up in bargaining. Uh, but at the end of the day, listen, I, I, I still haven't found the day where these guys are saying, you know what, you're right. Let's let's not hit you enough. Well, let's be proactive in this, right? I, I haven't seen that from a lot of coaches. Now, I will say some of them are getting better, and I don't want to lump in everybody together. But unfortunately, a lot of these rules have to be to the lowest common denominator because they won't police themselves. And so when we look at our responsibility as a union, it's not to – a couple of clubs, it's not to eight or nine or ten clubs, it's to every guy in the NFL. And so we have to we have to paint bright lines and we have to make sure that guys at on every single ball club are taken care of the way they're supposed to be. And 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 that there aren't two renegade coaches abusing guys and abusing the system. Because quite frankly, unfortunately, we've had that uh, across decades and across the years and we had that leading into eleven. And there was a big um there, there was uh, there was a lot of conversations around how can we prevent that from happening, and, and this is what you have. Well, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, there, there's there's two ways of, of looking at it, and and I frankly think that it's the right two ways to look at it. There was a time in in the National Football League where players were really off the entire offseason, and and that might have been you know a few decades ago, but. Um, you know, I grew up watching those teams. I grew up watching those players, and I frankly think it was pretty good football. Um, the other way of looking at it is what do you say to the player who was forced to work beyond the ordinary workday? Because one coach said that he um, would have the opportunity to keep his job if he worked beyond the normal workday and blew out his shoulders. Not one group of coaches stood up to police, you know, as, as Eric would say, the renegade coach. No owner stepped in uh, to protect the players from that, that overwork. Um, the only entity here to make sure that what's fair and what's right um, is, a, is afforded to the players is the union. And um, I know that might not make every coach happy, but when it comes to our player leadership, um, to echo what Eric said, I, I have yet to hear from a player or, or a large group of players who say that we need to work more. Hey, Ryan, I'll I give you a, a great uh, kind of antidote slash uh, uh, conversation I had. It was coming out, so we so we were locked out, and so obviously nothing happened that off season. We come back to football in eleven. We play the season, and then we're at the combine, and we're having a meeting with coaches. And one coach comes up to me and says, "You know what? I'll tell you what. You know, coming into camp, I didn't know what to expect, but you guys, you guys were ready to play. You guys came back after camp, ready to play. And I kind of part of me, and not part of me, but most of me were like, "Yeah, we're professionals. What do you think we were going to do?" But B, the next thing he said to me was. Yeah, but we got to change these work rules, and we got to have more time with you guys. 
So it just goes to show you that it, it, it's almost in their DNA. They can't help themselves, right? They want to have they, It's like this needful thing that even though every guy after the workout, not, not every guy after the lockout, but he was even admitting how ready these guys were to go into camp and, and ready to play and in shape. He still thought, oh, we, but we still need, we still need more offseason. It, it's, it's just, a, I don't know if it's in their DNA. I don't know if they can't help themselves, but I think coaches are always going to complain about it. And they're always going to point to something that, quite frankly, takes them off the hook. And when you start talking about some of these issues, that's what it is, I think, a lot of times. GYA, oh, well, it's not that I didn't draft the right guy. It's not that I didn't have my team ready. It's like I just I didn't have enough time to get them readier. Or if we would have had a couple more padded practices, then all of a sudden we would have been able to beat that team. I, I just, I just, frankly, playing for as long as I did, I don't see it. Has the rookie scale had the kind of impact you wanted on how money's dispersed now since we've capped kind of what rookies can make being drafted? Well, it certainly has pushed more money down to the uh, draftees below the third round. Um, it's put more money into veterans' uh, pockets in our locker room, and that was the goal. And, and I'll give you I, also, this is always a funny conversation and, and uh, that I always hear people having, and yet they don't relate the two. You know, what's the conversation? What kind of quarterback do you need to have other than Tom Brady? What kind of quarterback do you need to have to win the Super Bowl these days? What does everybody say? Rookie quarterback. You got to have a rookie quarterback. Yeah. So why do you have to have a rookie quarterback? Because he's not making any money. I still think this this theory is so right. overblown. Right. So right. If he's right. not making any money, right? So you're saying the rookie quarterback's not making any money, and so all the other money goes to everybody else on the team. That's how you have to win the Super Bowl. Obviously, caveat the Patriots. <laughs> but then everyone says, "Well, wait a minute. The other guys aren't getting any money." Well. It's got to be one or the other, right? It can't be, well, the other guy that's not going back into the locker room, but yet the rookie, I mean, I'll tell you, of course, the first round guys, you know, the first, whatever it was, 25, 30 picks, I think it was, 25 picks have, are taking less over four years than they did before. But the idea was always to push it back into the locker room, uh, to book it back to the other guys. People like to say, well, that's not happening. And then I say, well, then you tell me how it's not happening if everybody's saying you have to have a rookie quarterback to win the Super Bowl. Now, I don't believe you have to have a rookie quarterback to win the Super Bowl, but if that's the argument, then you're implicitly saying the money has to go, money's going back in the locker I got the chance to work with Dominic Foxworth quite a bit at ESPN. I didn't know him prior to working with him. I know he's very involved in this stuff, and, and we would spend some time talking on the air. We spent a lot of time talking off the air, and we'd always talk about guaranteed contracts. And... I've always understood the players' frustration with this. I think me, my age in 40s, growing up with it, we were just beaten over the head with the idea, well, there's no way the NFL could ever have it. And you start getting older and you start thinking about it and you go, wait a minute, like why, why couldn't NFL players have guaranteed contracts? And I think a lot of fans would still resist it. I think it would maybe take some of the guaranteed money away from the top-tier guys. Maybe contracts would just be structured differently. Maybe they'd be shorter. We'd have some of these fake years they get rid of. But do you think you'd ever have the support with sometimes 2,000 players in a season and the massive turnover that you have in this game, do you think you'd ever have enough player support where people would be willing to actually miss some game checks to have this kind of groundbreaking change happen in the CBA for the NFL? Well, I, I guess the first thing is, um, what, what what major sports CBA guarantees their contract by CBA? 
You're right. It's an owner's decision on how far they want to guarantee it. But um, like when Chris Paul signs for four years plus one, I know there's a really good chance when it's a player option that he's going to get that fifth year guaranteed. Um, I know there's no. You, you you misread what I'm. I'm making the point that no CBA guarantees players' contracts across the board. Basketball um, uh, guaranteed contracts came about as a matter of custom in the '70s and the '80s. There's no CBA that guarantees every player's contract. So what you saw last year or two years ago in the National Football League, um, you saw a high-profile quarterback get a guaranteed contract. Um, Those are things that, over the course of time, has happened on a player-by-player basis. So, you know, the first thing I would say, you know, with respect to guaranteed contracts is um, we've talked to the agent community about, Um, ways that players should be colluding together in order to increase their bargaining leverage uh, to obtain guaranteed contracts, whether it's left tackles, um, safeties, linebackers, quarterbacks. You know, there's nothing that prevents players from colluding to improve their leverage to get the contract that they want. So, you know, that's kind of the first issue. Um, Second... Yes, there might be um, ramifications of having every contract guaranteed by CBA against cap um, uh, skill and injury, and that's something that the players would have to decide that they that they want. But you know, instead of jumping forward to to find out whether or not you know players would be willing to miss games about it, I think the first question is whether the group of player leadership. Uh, believes that every contract in the National Football League should be guaranteed against cap, skill, and interest. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense, because you're right. I mean, the, the technical part of that is that, yes, the CBA in, in hockey, in baseball, in basketball, but I, I think it's, it's it's so much about perception sometimes with this stuff, which may sound crazy. Yeah, with, you know, with... and, and look, and I, you know, I, I just cut Eric off, but, you know, <laughs> there, there's a lot in this business where we could spend a lot of time trying to make people happy by giving them a better perception, um, or we can engage our player leadership, have them understand the issues the right way, um, and have them make real decisions about what's in the best interest of players and, and not worry too much about perception. Do you think it's good when NFL players tweet and complain about NBA contracts? Um, I think it's good anytime a player um, makes his voice heard, and it's even better if they understand the issues when they do. Yes, that was a very good addition uh, to that. I, Eric, did you have more on that? Because I still have other stuff I want to get to here. Because I, I, no, 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 that's good. I, I, I he covered it. Like I said, I, I think there's there's macro and micro uh, issues at play, and I think. You know we're going to constantly push that that uh, envelope and, and open doors and, and try to make it as as uh, as easy and, and whatnot as possible to to have every guy get whatever contract you want. And I think that's the important thing is that I think a lot of people say like you you made the per, you made the uh, you said the right thing of there could be some trade offs that certain guys aren't willing to make. Right? You said shorter contracts, whatever. But that's you know that's where we're at, right? Every guy's got to make their decision as if they're their business. And, and we move down the road. Cause I always think about the math of this where, you know, this is kind of getting back to sort of that macro thing. It's that 
okay, the players feel we should have this kind of revenue cut. We feel like we should have this kind of workload in the offseason. We feel like these should be the benefits. And, and, you know, discipline should be handled this way, right? Like all the stuff that we've all talked about and we're of, and plenty of stuff yep. that you guys know about that I don't, that I, maybe I'll never know about, you know, the, the intricacies of how this stuff works. But it's just so much harder when it's 1,500 players to 2,000 players in a given season. I don't know how you. I I sympathize with you here, not just as a, right. as a guy going pro player versus anti owner. I sympathize with trying to get that many guys on the same page, knowing that when you look at how this league works, like how many guys in that room, if you could put them all in a room, would be willing to miss paychecks for the greater good of future generations of football players. I think it's an almost impossible task, and I I'm obviously the owners are aware of it. If I'm aware of it, and I don't know how you handle that. Welcome to our world. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, we, I think the biggest thing, and I think it's something that I learned. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid from West Texas that had never seen a union in his life and, and wasn't, was never exposed to one until I was in this one. And so uh, for me, it's about telling that story, right? It's about telling the story of Bill Radovich and, and what he's gone through and all the way up with Mackey and then Reggie White and fighting for free agency and everything that happened in between. And, and it's about letting guys know and, and teaching them the history and then having letting them understand that history and then dictate their future. And that's what I think this is all about more than anything is, is arming our guys with the info they need to make the right decisions. And those right decisions are the decisions that they'll make and, and that they get to choose their destiny going forward. And that's what's sort of crazy about all this but at the same time it, it's really cool and, and that's why I do it because I want to help and I want to help these guys and and uh, they've entrusted me and 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 I want to I want to pay that back by by doing that for them well and, and you understand it um it's it's not the easiest challenge in the world but you know in its most crass form you framed the issue perfectly there's a lot of issues that players do care about there's a lot of issues that players should care about it's one thing to simply want to complain about those issues um but it's another thing if you are willing to to do what teachers across america have have done nurses uh, across america have done um what the u.s women's national soccer team threatened to do um it's one thing to complain about things it's another thing to to actually arm yourself and exercise um, your rights as a worker to go on strike. And and until you're willing to, to fight uh, a group of owners on that level, um, everything else is, is just going to be a complaint up to that point, right? right? Yeah, you know, I think about different things at work. Like if this played out, if I were at ESPN, and, um, you know, obviously I still am, but I've been there a long time, and we had a contingency of guys that were like, hey, all international travel needs to be stepped up. <laughs> the rest of us would be like, <laughs> we don't care. And that kind of right. leads me to like some of the other things. Like we make a ton of noise about the franchise tag. I think the franchise tag is, is a great mechanism for the owners to kind of suppress the top salaries or lower guaranteed money because you don't have enough guys getting to the market clear and free. But I looked it up. I think I have this right. I think 11 players over the last four years have actually played on the tag. So right. how many other guys are really going to care? And I think that transitions, because I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about the franchise tag, but things right. like, punishment and Goodell's authority and right. hearing about how that's been, you know, 
just complained about for years. And you go, okay, but how many players actually care about that? How many players actually care about the NFL not testing for marijuana? Like some of these smaller issues, do you walk, like, do we sensationalize the headlines where most of the players don't care about Goodell's authority, don't care about testing for marijuana? Where are we with those and things? I, and I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this is, is th- that's why I say it's not going to be an extension. Right, it's going to be a renegotiation because every guy's going to get to choose. Um, our leadership's going to going to put forth what they're hearing in the locker room, what they've been telling their guys, and, and onward, and, and what we've gathered going through every locker room, et cetera, about what they care about. And I, so I think you're right. To I, I think you're right on the point is that this is what the current guys care about, what they believe in, and and what are you willing to to achieve those ends and. At the end of the day, that's that's what this is all about. We'll have more with the guys here in a second. But first, Father's Day is around the corner, and a subscription to Golf Digest Schools is the perfect gift. With more than 350 video lessons on every part of the game featuring golf's leading teachers from Butch Harmon to David Ledbetter to Michael Breed. It's like having the best minds in golf at your disposal wherever you are, on your phone, laptop, or TV screen. By the way, this is an awesome, awesome gift. Like, we get these ads, we read them. And we say them and we hope you guys interact because it's the only way we keep this stuff going. But this is actually a sick gift. So anyway, back to the app. With Golf Digest Schools, you can send a video of your swing to be analyzed by a Golf Digest ranked teacher or follow their fitness programs to help you get in your best golf shape. These are not quick tips that you find on YouTube. From power to putting, from breaking 100 to breaking par. No video program gives you more opportunities to take your golf game to the next level just as if you were working with a pro. Everybody needs to be doing this with all sorts of things. Golf Digest is onto something here. Like, hey, am I dressed right? Let me send it into GQ. To sign up for Golf Digest schools or give it a last minute Father's Day gift, go to golfdigest.com forward slash all access and use promo code DUAL D-U-A-L to get 30% off an annual subscription. That's golfdigest.com all access and use the promo code DUAL for 30% off today. Speaking of some of the great partnerships that we've had. Belvedere, how did they feel about that last read, Kyle? Because uh, I've been checking the inbox, and I haven't gotten anything, so I think, I think okay. we're all right. Okay, so let's do this then. Nothing in the inbox. We feel good. Belvedere, part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition, Belvedere Vodka is all-natural and made with 100% non-GMO Polska rye and pristine water. Belvedere has championed Polska rye vodka and superior natural ingredients since its inception and continues their mission with its new Belvedere Single Estate Rye Series. Not named after me. These award-winning vodkas, Smogori Forest and Lake Bartezik, are two distinct tasting vodkas born from unique territory and expert craftsmanship. Smogori Forest is crafted from rye cultivated on a single estate deep in the vast woodlands of western Poland. You know how I feel about that area. Where long summers, what's better than a long summer, right? And a pristine environment helped develop a bold, robust, and savory vodka. Hell, I've got some free time in August. I'm thinking about Poland. I'm going to write it down. I'm thinking about just gone, man. Maybe four straight weeks. I'm serious. Might not be able to pull it off. Speaking of vodka, though, I had a close friend. The father would drink a different liqueur. That's a weird way. He'd just drink a different liquor. He'd golf. He'd have a couple. And then he was told, you're banned from that one. You can't drink that that one anymore. You just, you come home, you're too weird. Guess what he's drinking now? Belvedere. He's not weird. 
He's golfing with his buddies. He's back. He's back on his horse. Coasting. Everybody's having a great time. And he's never weird around the house anymore. And that's because he's drinking Belvedere. So what other endorsement do you need besides that my close friend's dad isn't weird anymore? I don't know what you need. We might have to send them another bill for how good that was. How convincing. <laughs> Taste the difference and enjoy Belvedere's new single estate rye vodkas on the rocks or in a delicious cocktail today. Belvedere is a quality choice. Drinking responsibly is too. Will marijuana be something that's brought up? Will, will that be something you feel like players will push for as, as, a, as a point here to win for the players where they don't want to be tested for it anymore? Um, I, I don't. Well, I, I'm being somewhat cagey uh, about the answer. Um, <laughs> I think what will come up is um, what, what do we want to accomplish when it comes to player health, um, player rehabilitation, um, the issue of pain. Um, we said earlier that, that we don't look at issues sort of siloed. Um, I, I think that there are uh, a lot of things that we can change that not only make um, the lives of players better, but, but making better decisions about avoiding the things that we know that cause injury, pain, dependency, um, the use of op- uh, opioids, um, those are the things that, that I think that there um, are substantial wins, not only for the players, but, but for all of us on those issues. And, and is, is marijuana or alternative treatments in that matrix? Yes. Okay. That was, we got there. We got to PG-13 by the end of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. The TV deal. I have my own thoughts about this since, you know, I work for one of the big companies in that. Okay, the I, I know exactly where the article is coming from when I read an article that says, eh, everybody likes to just wrap up this new CBA by September 1st of this year with a new TV deal looming um, in 2022. That'd be great um, if everybody were happy. I don't, I don't see how it would just happen that quickly. And I don't know that the television broadcasting companies would be like I don't think they're going to sit there on September 2nd if there's not a new CBA going, oh, we don't know if we want to be in business with the NFL. I think that's like ludicrous and overstated. How much, I mean, who's the advantage for here? Is is it really that much of an advantage for the Players Association to have this expiring TV deal two years after the CBA? I, I don't know. I think you framed the issue extremely well. I mean, you, you understand it probably probably better than, than, than most. Um, I, I don't know whether it gives us an advantage. Um, I agree with you. I don't really see, you know, going back to um, uh, a group of people working together. I don't see the five networks necessarily sitting around in September. And if, you know, a deal is present or if a deal is not present, five networks just saying, hey, let's not do business with the National Football League again. I don't see that happening. I think that it's, um, is a good idea for us to talk um, about things that make our our overall business model stronger. Um, I think that if we can do things um, that improve uh, the lives of players, uh, that balances out um, our relationship in a in a fair way, um, those are those are conversations that are are good to have. He's right. You hit the nail on the head. There is that. You know, listen, we're, we're always going to. Whether it's before or after September one, you know, like I've always said, I'll I'll reach my hand out halfway, and it's got to be met halfway. And 
we're going to continue to have productive conversations if, as long as they're willing to be productive, right? And and uh, we'll see where it goes. But I don't look at it and say, oh my God, if we don't get something done by X period, then you know it's just it's going to be a it's going to be a loss for us or something like that. Demoris, I know going back and in, in researching some of the stuff, the more technical side. So please correct me if I get anything wrong here. But to certifying the union to go after the NFL that way. It wasn't something the courts actually looked upon favorably, so it didn't really work maybe as a, as a strategy. What did you learn about that approach that maybe you would change course if it gets to the point where we're looking at a work stoppage? Um, what did I look at to change course? Yeah, from, from the strategy, if it gets to that point, like what do you learn about strategy going through this, you know, nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, uh, if you have to go down that road again in 2020 or after yeah, 2020? Absolutely. You would. I mean, you know, if if someone uh, decides in your market that they're only going to pay sports journalists ten thousand dollars a year, and you, as you know, if if I don't know whether you belong to a union or not, but if you decided that that was a violation of the antitrust law and you won at the district court level and you won half of it at the appellate court level and lost half of it at the appellate court level. And then 10 years later, they did exactly the same thing to you again. I doubt you would say that you wouldn't pursue your legal remedies, right? That would be correct. That would be, that would be a correct assumption. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's not a question of, you know, what D. Smith learns or not. I, I think we still live under a nation of laws. And people who are aggrieved should have access um, to pursue their remedies. And does the law change? Sure. But under what scenario would you ever turn to a group of people and say, because you lost half of it, um, in the in the appellate court, you and you won half of it in the appellate court that you wouldn't use every tool um, to seek redress for what you thought was a violation of your constitutional right. I didn't really think you were going to give me your strategy um, over a podcast, but oh no, I, I, I'm being really blunt with you. You are, you are. No, I know, and I, and I get I'm, that. You, you asked me what my strategy was, and if they locked us out, would we decertify and sue? Under the antitrust laws again? Yes. That's a great answer. Thank you for that answer. Uh, <laughs> it also no. happens to be true. Um, I, sometimes I give both. <laughs> uh, let's. I have a couple more things, and I, and I know. Don't worry. I'm, I'm aware of the time on this because I really appreciate how busy you guys are. Eric, for your side of this, is this fun for you, or is it? The fine fun. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> No, I mean, uh, it's a really fascinating thing to educate yourself on it. You know, I imagine you come into the league, you're a young guy, you think you have it figured out, you pick out the new car, and then you're like, wait a minute, what? And then, you know, you start maybe getting a little motivated, you know, you start feeling like you have some kind of message, and, and then you go, you know what, I'm going to take more responsibility on this. Like, anybody that wants to do this. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky to have a mentor when I first came into the league, um, a guy named Mark Bruner, who played, gosh, 14, 15 years at, in Houston who was a, a vice president of our union. And, you know, he, he put his arm around me, kind of showed me how, what it meant to be a professional. 
Um, and we would talk a lot and I'd ask him a thousand questions, not really knowing his role. And he was the one that, that said, Hey, you need to come to this meeting, right? Ask your questions at this meeting. And I did. And he got me to uh, my first big rep meeting, even before I was a rep. And that sort of just opened my eyes because I saw the guys that I watched on TV, the Jeff Saturdays, the Mike Rabels, uh, the Kevin Malai's, these, these leaders and leaders on their team doing it for the, their fellow guys around the league. And they were making decisions that affected everybody. They were standing up and saying, hey, I'm willing to be hurt. And that was something that I just looked at and said, I, I want to help. And I didn't really know what that was going to bring. I didn't know that was definitely not going to bring me here. But I just wanted to help. And so I did it in our locker room, and I was willing to, to run things down and, and, and do things that way. And, and I did it in Kansas City when I was there as well as the rep there. And, and so I, I, I just continued on that path, and, and it's, it's led me here. And, uh, again, like I said before, for me, um, while it can be stressful and uh, it's, it's, uh, you, you only get paid in, in grief sometimes, uh, it, it's been an incredible learning experience. And uh, I've, I've gained a lot of just interesting insights I think that's going to carry me for the rest of my life. But um, I, I enjoy the mission. And I enjoy what it means to, to do this. And I'm, I'm more than anything, I'm honored that the guys would vote, for, vote me in to do something like this. And so I feel a, a certain sense of debt to them that I've, now I've got to show up and, and repay that. And, and so for me, that, that means getting ready and doing everything I can to put us in, in the right position uh, coming up here. And if it gets done under, you know, while I'm still the president, great. And if it doesn't, then I, I feel like it's my responsibility to give it to the next guy and leave it a little bit better than I found it. And that's something that I've always just believed in and that I was going to do. I have a question for both of you on this one because, you know, I'm bringing up that word perception again and, and being a guy that talked about it for three hours a day for 10 years and, and going, okay, this is how I feel about this and then change your mind a little bit. I'm telling you, I've never seen more fan support for players for your sport, um, and even media too. Like it's an overwhelming shift from the way it was where, you know, people were selfish. I'm, and people are still selfish, but fans were very selfish. It's like, hey, just play, go play, go play. And I think as people have educated themselves, um, there, there are more people that are pro player in the media and fans than, than I think we've ever seen before. But there's still a part of that selfishness where the fans like, hey, I, am I going to miss football? I just want my football. What would you say to Morris to the fan that maybe doesn't understand exactly what this is that you're fighting for, that it's not just another chunk of the revenue split, getting a percentage point or two back? What would you say to the person that that maybe is selfish at home in their jersey just hoping kickoff is on Sunday? I would say that the issue should be about fairness. I mean, what would you want um, for your son? Um, what would you want for your father? What would you want for your brother? Um, I love football. You know, Eric, you know, knows more about football, probably forgot more about football than I'll, I'll ever know. But um, when you come here and you work for this union, um, you're consumed with fairness. And I know that we have great fans. I agree with you that, that there has been a shift. Um, but I never look at this as sort of a binary thing between people who love football or do they have to choose players. Um, we should all be interested in fairness. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you another story. Uh, I have a, a really good buddy that I, I played with, and 
Um, he was he's a, he was actually a rep in, in one of the teams that we were at, and his uh, his father was from a, a very rural part of Georgia, and obviously not not the heart of Union Country. And um, you know he, he was at one of the rep meetings, and he's like, you know, I didn't really get it until until my son was in the league, until I even and even then I didn't quite get it until now. And and you you understand, you know, he was telling me this. I understand how important it is. Uh, and, it, and, it, and I guarantee you nothing he was saying had to, anything to do with money. And it had to do with what we talk about and, and health and, and, and benefits and retirement. And, and again, goes back to what Dee said. It's just overall fairness. It's about, it's about putting in something and getting out what you've put in for it. And I, I just I think that's what this is really all about more than anything is just us being able to realize that as a collective, uh, that, that, that we've we've done something special and the guys before us did something special and that they should see that and they should see that collective fairness. And, and I get it. I get the fans sometimes don't, don't want to talk about it or don't want to hear about it, but it, you know, there's, you know, you know, that, that's, that's where we're at right now. And, and the business of this sport um, is what it is and it has to be dealt with. And there's a lot of guys that are going to come after me that are depending on us to do the right thing. And there's a lot of guys that have already came before us that are depending on us to do the right thing. And and that's what we got to do. And I, and I really believe that if more fans, even though, even now will speak up about it and, and more, you know, the more former players, everybody raises their voice a little bit. I, I do think that moves the needle. And, and I think that that gets something again done that, that is more in line with, what I, I would consider fair. Last thing, Demoris, if I read an article that you and Roger Goodell have never gotten along better than you do right now, should I believe it? Uh, only if you wrote besties. Besties. Um, not, look, I mean, we've got a great, uh, we've got a great relationship, and I think um, you know, I certainly respect the job that Roger does. You know, I hope that he respects the job that I do. But I, you know, I've said it before. I, I've never believed that. Um, this job or his job is necessarily about friendship. Um, I think both of us have a job to do, and and I think we're both blessed to be stewards of our of our business. And um, if we can figure out a way to um, you know, make that better, um, so be it. But but if not, um, each of us knows how to do our job extremely well. All right, that was a good answer. You got you got back to kind of. Head, head of the head of the whole thing. Very diplomatic there. Uh, look, guys, I, I know. I, go ahead. I try. Um, no, I, look, the one thing I would say about um, I wanted to add about um, sort of um, opinions changing. Um, I do think that that people like you um, um, who spend time researching issues and then presenting them to our fans in ways that maybe they haven't necessarily thought about before. Um, has led has been probably the largest you know single contributor to the, the, the change in perception and um, you know that that's my way of saying thank you yeah wow I didn't expect to say you're welcome at the end of this podcast but um, <laughs> here we are hey but seriously <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, this this was a lot of fun I hope I educated some people because it's it's a nice downtime uh, for the NFL and I don't know how the story is going to go. I don't think you guys know, and I, I look forward to watching it develop, and, and hopefully it is a happy ending for everybody. So thanks again. All right, man. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Dual Threat Podcast. Hope you learned something today, not just about Poland, but about the NFL CBA with Demore Smith and Eric Winston. And make sure you tell all your friends to subscribe, rate, and review to the Dual Threat Podcast. And we will see you again next week. Thank you.